Welcome, friends, to the Wild Isle Podcast. I have back with me, Josh Broverman. Hello. How you doing, Josh? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Uh, it's been a, quite a few weeks uh, since we've done one of these, but we're pretty excited to get back to it. We've got a uh, rather profound subject matter to cover, venturing far uh, in a field from really either of our areas of expertise, mm. perhaps. Uh, but maybe that'll make it all the more fun. But before we get into things, i got a shill for my website. So for those of you listening, uh, if you're interested in more of these podcasts, you can find them at wildislelit.com. Uh, there I also have my published fiction. Currently, I've got a novel out, Wan Smoke Broken. It's a weird fantasy fiction novel full of a bunch of flintlocks and you know, dark and occult magic and alchemy and such. So go check that out if you're interested. Also there you can find my blog. Right now I'm doing a lot of uh, post on Taoism. So if you're interested in Eastern philosophy, you can check that out. Lastly, I've got my editing services. So you, if you are a fellow author out there um, and you are looking to get something published, but you need to sharpen up before publication time, uh, go to the contact form on my website, wildislelit.com, and uh, shoot me an email and I can help you out. All right. With that being said, we'll talk about our topic for the day. And I wanted to discuss um, the concept of faith in regard to our discussion about uh, Cain's inability to to hand over, let's say, the agonies of life to God. How okay. Yeah. So why don't you, uh, Josh, start out talking to talk, just tell the audience what you told me that day or some amalgamation of it. Well, I don't exactly remember what I told you that day. Um, I remember, so that day specifically, just maybe this will jog my memory. I remember one thing I wanted to talk to you about was how one deals with malevolence. When one encounters malevolence in the world, how should one approach dealing with it? And I had an idea of how to deal with it. And the conclusion we, we came to was to just kind of walk away from it if you can. Um, and that, that seems to be the most reasonable path to dealing with it. Um, however, in regards to faith, you know, I think we were discussing sort of how faith can be used as a tool for people to overcome great burdens. And then I had a bit of an aha moment uh, where I realized that Cain's great dilemma was that he was no longer able to use this this mechanism. And... uh yeah, for those who are listening, uh, really quickly, I'll go over a truncated version of the Cain Abel story. We should all be familiar with this, uh, but I'm sure that there will be some listeners who aren't, at least not in the way that we're discussing it. Um, so you've got Cain and Abel, they're brothers. Uh, Abel is a shepherd. Cain works in the fields. Uh, all of Cain's sacrifices are ignored by God while Abel's are, are lauded and he's greatly rewarded. Cain becomes resentful, comes up to God and is like, yo, God. What the fuck? This world you made sucks. My sacrifices don't get shit. And God, you know, looks at Cain and says, look, man, you know, maybe your sacrifices aren't all that hot shit. And maybe you've invited sin into your house. And, uh, like, uh, take this one from Peterson, like a cat in heat and let it have its way with sexually you. Sexually aroused animal. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, of course, you know, so basically it's like, you know, Cain, maybe fucking the problem is you. Mm. Maybe it's your sacrifices that suck. 
and uh, what happens is Cain becomes resentful. This is the last thing he wants to hear, and he uh, would say, embodying what I typically call the spirit of vengeance, seeks vengeance against God. And you know, Cain is a limited moral. What vengeance can you take against God? Well, you can destroy the thing that you view as most valuable to God. So he kills his brother Abel, um, and when you know God comes back. He has that classic line, like, where is Abel? And it's like, Cain responds, what am I, his keeper? Mm. Uh, and God ends up cursing Cain. The ground will no longer produce produce for him. And he is now forced to venture out into the world wandering. Um, and interestingly enough, actually, uh, and we might not come back to this, I don't know. But there's a, a line in there when Cain gets the mark placed on him. A lot of people uh, misinterpret this line. They think that that is part of the punishment. But Cain only gets that mark after he complains to God that his punishment is too severe and that everyone's just going to fucking descend on him and kill him. For it's his a crimes. mark of protection. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. To be to be marked by God in this case is to, to have his protection. But in this context, um, when you were talking about suffering being too great, Mm. Cain's suffering was too great because he was now disconnected from God. Yeah. Right. Um, and you mentioned faith as being a way out. It very well may be the case that faith might be the only way out, but it depends on what we mean by faith. And that's really where I wanted to start the conversation. So before I chatter your ear off anymore, when you hear the word faith, what meanings? arise to you sure so i i'm glad that at the beginning of this you mentioned that we both might not be well we both aren't the most qualified people to be discussing this but i also think that i never really listened to anybody who was qualified right like i've met a bunch of pastors and preachers and ministers who have talked about faith to me and um i don't know i never really listened to them and i think um I think that faith seems to me something learned, learned through experience more than through listening. And I also think that, you know, in regard to the whole God talk, right? It's like, nobody wants to hear that shit. You know, like, I didn't want to hear that. I didn't care. Um, when people spoke about God or about faith, it just didn't resonate with me. Um. So... I don't know that I want to define faith. I, I don't want to try to academically define it right now. Maybe we'll do that throughout throughout our discussion here. But I know for me that faith began. Faith began when I was bumping into tasks that seemed too great to carry, burdens too great to bear, such as Cain. It's a dilemma, you know. So. A pressure builds on a person, right? When, when faced with uh, extreme stress, when faced with situations where there seems to be no way out, a pressure builds up, and it's it's like a maddening pressure. Um, and I think that throughout most of my life, I found ways to like I found unhealthy ways to escape from that that pressure, um, whether it be through drugs or alcohol or food or sex or whatever. Um, now, when I take all that away from myself, I was faced with a serious problem, which was that there was still going to be pressure, but I didn't have much of an escape. Um, I found through healthy lifestyle choices that 
I was able to avoid the pressure building up too much. But as I continued to challenge myself and push deeper into the unknown, right? I, I found that I came upon challenges that seemed at least in that moment too great for me to overcome. Um, and then all that was left was to crack or crumble or to have faith. And in my experience, it was that through some form of faith, I was able to find a way through these, these, ta these, these challenging tasks. Um, and I also found, uh, like a tremendous gratitude in those, in those moments, in those times. Um, they do feel more like moments to me. They don't feel like days as much. Um, but they're starting to. And it's like, uh, I, uh, I don't know what God is and I'm, I'm not sure how to define it. Um, I'm not sure I want to define it, but I, I have come to accept that there's something loving and caring in this universe that wants to see the best happen to me. Um, and that if I can, if I can do everything within my power to work towards that goal as well, that it seems to show up when I fall short. And so I don't know if I have a definition for faith, but I have this thing that I'm calling faith, yeah. you know? So uh, what I like to do with this type of situation is to work backwards from, backwards from what a thing isn't, because I usually find that's much easier to establish. Sure, yeah. And then you can kind of build toward the opposite direction of what sure. it might be. So the one thing I noticed that it doesn't sound like faith is to you um, is that faith isn't like an irrational, uh, let's say, belief in a thing being like you might like you know, the normal really i think the ordinary person's definition of faith is exactly what what you just described it doesn't sound like at all it's like i believe this thing because i've like chanted it in my head that i believe it and i have to believe it because of like dogma or i have to it's not like a I, prescription I don't know if that would work I, it never worked that never worked for me no and it never worked for me either um so i think I think I described this both this way last time with some trepidation and for both of us, uh, we're essentially are products of the like post enlightenment, uh, agnostic atheism where it's not necessarily like super hard atheism where it's like, you know, the, uh, attacks against all forms of religion. I would say it's super insecure atheism because that's really <laughs> what that is. It's really just the only people I was thinking about this earlier is like, and I think we've all been there. I think, any intellectual type like like ourselves you just get there around your teenager yeah yeah a teenager <laughs> where you kind of like can't shut the fuck up about the fact that like like there's no real like great evidence for god's existence um and you kind of resent everybody who believes in god and you kind of think you're like superior in a way and you kind of enjoy like throwing that in people's face and you're just a little shit but really that's a entry level um inexperienced sort of narcissistic silly child with a with a a magnifying glass you know standing over an anthill type of uh approach to to to, to belief belief systems and then that wraps us so we're not talking about that we're not talking about um the the simple 
the simple faith that's easy to take out by a teenager. Yeah, that's not what we're talking about. We're not cool, talking about angry little teenager yeah. just desperately trying to feel superior to something. And that seems easy, I think. And if I connect that back with the uses that you have for faith, which I, w- I won't jump into defining it. I don't want to do that. But I, I wanted to look at the need. The need was when, let's say, uh, tactics that would normally work stop working. Like you do make healthy choices. Um, Try to. <laughs> yeah. This would be something I've been reading a lot of um, Zen Buddhism recently. And uh, Takulon Soho, uh, he was Zen Buddhist, probably the most popular and just like favorite Zen Buddhist monk that mm-hmm. was in Japan. Um, and he wrote quite a lot. And one of the things he talks about is that uh, you have like a particular way and then you have the way yes. that all the particular ways are predicated on. And so when you're talking about making good and positive choices, that reminds me a lot of having a particular way, which allows you to confront the struggles of life to an extent. Yeah. And that, you know, those are hills that you have to climb. It's not like that's easy following a particular way. Sure. Uh, and that fits in a lot with um, Nietzsche's Zarathustra. The, uh, er, one of the early chapters is the three metamorphoses. And I keep coming back to this in my reading of other philosophies where you begin and you become a camel. So you have to bury a heavy load. That's mm-hmm. a particular way. Yeah. And that makes you powerful over time because you become disciplined. And once you are powerful enough, you, uh, you can take the fetters off and you don't just return to this laziness because you're transformed. You're not mm-hmm. a camel anymore. You're a lion. Yeah. And then there's a third stage of the transformation that is the child to return again to a state of innocence, which coincides with, I think, the greater way. Like mm-hmm. once you've gone through this particularity, you reach this ascent that, um, let's say, comes prior to a great fall. Now, I'm kind of dipping into union psychology where he had this idea that as you elevate your consciousness, which uh, all that meant in union psychology is you become more and more aware of yourself mm-hmm. and your inadequacies and all the yeah. ways you can need to get better. And that's a particular way, right? You start to reshape yourself. Um, there's this precipitous fall that will happen right when you hit the peak and you realize something incredibly profound that you couldn't see until you reach that high ascent on the mountain, until you've ascended the world tree. And then at that time, because you become suddenly aware of that deep and profound pain and suffering, something about existence or yourself, you get plunged down the roots of the tree into hell. And sure, then, yeah. then you need something else. Yes. And I think that something else is the faith you're talking about. And I think it's what Nietzsche was talking about at the beginning of the, uh, I can't remember if it's a preface or chapter one of, uh, or the introduction for Beyond Good and Evil. For those who don't have a master's in philosophy, um, I think what Marquise was trying <laughs> to say is that sometimes you get the ball to the five-yard line and you, you need a really strong fullback to punch it into the end zone. <laughs> yes. And what that and what that is, though, because everyone will enjoy this. I, I started laughing the first time I read it out loud in the car because I just got back from Florida at the time. Um, but in the very beginning of Beyond Good and Evil, he starts, his opening line is, Suppose truth were a woman. What then? And then he proceeds to explain how philosophers through all the time are really like terrible at wooing women. They don't know what they're doing. 
And but he cares. I wonder a, why. <laughs> <laughs> but but the the he actually has a, a really deep metaphor with that that he doesn't play out in one place in Nietzsche's style where he makes you work like a fucking horse to understand anything he's saying. But he's saying that um, in the same way that let's say you're a man and you're trying to win over a woman, and once you've won her over, you're trying to actually get along with her if you're married. Which if you've ever been in a relationship with a woman, you know can be quite difficult. Sometimes so difficult that in fact maybe like no man has ever really done it <laughs> well enough. But I think the faith that you're talking about is the love there, the capacity to love the truth. The truth being that is which is which is like both God and the universe. And it's something that is really, really difficult to, to, to get a hold of. You have to have the right attitude, the right disposition, and it requires accepting things that your nature might want you to reject. Sure. So I think, um, I think you just offered a, a great uh, thesis on this. Um, I also think that nobody's going to understand what you just said. I think I might understand it, so maybe I'm going to try to uh, to fold it into some layman's terms and and regurgitate it and feel free to 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 correct me if I'm if I'm off. But I mean, and and let's go back to um, Cain and Abel, right? And and what we're talking about is is this concept of uh, well, you know, in the story is talking about sacrifice, um, and Abel makes good sacrifices. Abel's Abel's has this 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 like. He has no reservation about giving up his greatest lamb. And now he doesn't, I'm not giving the specific sacrifices, but he would sacrifice his, his wife. He would sacrifice his children. He would sacrifice his greatest lamb, his home, his anything. It doesn't matter because there is no sacrifice greater than the return that he will get from God uh, for his faith. Um, whereas, whereas Cain seemingly, uh, yeah, you know, I could probably come off my third fattest lamb you know what i mean i could uh give you my second wife um maybe i could give you my outhouse you know but he would not um he would not make the proper sacrifices right and it was like the way i interpret that is like the obvious one which is you have to make a certain level of investment to get a certain level of return right so like if you have a business that like requires a ten thousand dollar investment in order to start and you only have eight you're gonna you're gonna flee you know, the electric bill is gonna not get paid and it's you know then you're not gonna have electricity and then your business is gonna crack and crumble um but I also see that there's this saying that's like um God can move mountains but you have to bring a shovel and my concept is that I have to do everything I can. And I almost feel like if I don't do everything I can, then I'm not going to succeed, right? It's like, I have to be willing to make the greatest sacrifice, right? I have to be willing to give up everything to get the the return I want, right? So in the context of of uh, a business, it's I have to be willing to put it all. If I only have 10000 I have to invest 10000 I have to be willing to go broke to get this, right? That might be what it, that might be what it requires, to get ahead uh, in competition in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I might have to train every day. I might have to run hills every day. I might have to break myself. I, like they say, die in training, right? So that you can live in competition. Um, and the same thing in life, right? Because it's like, if I go, and this is really where like, so we, we're talking about God, but like, 
we don't need to turn this into a religion. We, we can and should, but we don't need to turn it into a religious or supernatural discussion, right? Like there are some, um, some spiritual principles, some ethical principles that many religions hand down to us. And if I live my best life, if I live for my fellow man, if I treat people as fallible and it, and not, and I try not to, um, to be too harsh or to judge them too harshly for being human like me. And I go through the world trying to be the best, the best person I can to others. There's a good, there's a very strong likelihood that, that the return is going to be good to me, that I'm going to live a good life, a homogenous life with my, my environment and my community, as opposed if I just go around being a fucking monster, you know, just being the worst, just, you know, breaking people's stuff and stealing from people and lying and not delivering on my promises. What's the return then? Right. So, you know, going back to Cain and Abel and the concept that if I do everything that I can to get what I think is best for me, something will carry me when I fall short. And, uh, and in my experience, it, that, that seems to be how it works. That, that if I conduct myself in a certain way and I put it all, if I leave it all on the table, I leave it all out there that when I inevitably fall short, something or someone picks me up. And I don't know how that someone got into the picture. Maybe it was God. Yeah. The, um, reminds me of what I've been reading recently, um, from the Taoist text. So, we we jump very shortly back to like Nietzsche's camel. You break yourself as the camel. Uh, you have to do it because if you don't do it, you will not, let's say, ascend to the necessary height that would make you who you could be. Mm. Right? Like Peterson esque, right? Like yeah, you know, reach your potential. What but, could you be? You know, yeah. If you get if you did everything you could, what would you be? It's something the Taoists point out about potential. It, it is that. Your potential is, it's like half you and half the rest of the universe mm -hmm. because you're born a particular time and place, particular bodies, particular communities and family members. So you're not unlimited. You're constrained. And in order to f find how you fit into the universe, you have to ascend that potential. Yeah. Right. You have it's to. It's an obligation. Yeah, with the with the universe or with yeah. God, if we want to think of God well, like God way. wants to see His creation, like like live to its fullest. It doesn't want you like if there was a God, because we could just play it like this. If there was a God, does He want you to sit at home and smoke weed and play video games and be a mm -hmm. fucking loser jerking off to porn every day? Ooh, porn hub, you know, all day long. No, I, I mean you know that because the people who do that are in pathetic. In, well, they're also in constant suffering requiring yeah. constant narcotics yeah. in the form of they are cane just suffering yeah. away and yeah. then where does resentment come from out of out of out of that like uh failure to make the right sacrifices yeah and it's what's interesting about that too if you want to turn to joseph campbell get mythological is that that is what ends the world yeah. because what happens if remember like being able to devote yourself to a particular way, develop yourself, reach your potential and find your space in the world is like loving life and being in the world itself. You might think of that from a, you know, you hear the Christian perspective, loving God. Mm -hmm. like, uh, and from the Nietzschean perspective, that's kind of like how you become 
the person capable of loving a woman now from a male's perspective that means you actually get to form a family and propagate and then more there are more humans and humanity sure. doesn't die out if we don't do that then you turn to killing your brother and mm -hmm. your idol and everything that you look up to and then all things come to die and the killing of the idol you know this is this shouldn't be controversial but it is i was reading um i think it's in san francisco they they didn't want to release some group of crime statistics because they they cited. I mean, they say this. I'm just quoting what they said. They said that it would lead to people having like a holding racist beliefs if they released these crime statistics. And the reason they were saying that, I think I didn't look at it enough. I should have was because there was a large amount of minorities that were committing these specific crimes. And it's like that's the like killing of the brother. Right. It's like. Well, when we don't get the outcomes we want in our resentful state, we we look to kill the the what would it be like the judge? We, we look to kill the. Um, it is the judge because it's God, yeah, right? Well, it's we want to we want to kill it, right? Yeah, we want to destroy it, and like it's like it's like is this this is like basically the worst thing that a human can do, right? It's like instead of becoming better, we're going to we're going to destroy the I can't even think of the word but the thing we want to, we should want to be yes this um i actually read the same thing it was in a one of the critical race theory essays i can't remember the and it's not a surprise that, that 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 san francisco like ground zero for like postmodernist like garbage like what like it's like a postmodernist dumpster fire it's like horrible you know but like well, it's something darker because I think for the audience, this is really important that they they understand. I'll try not to get academic about it if I can't help myself. But, um, you know, when you have some commentators ranting on about like this is satanic, what that means is oppositional. It means in opposition to being itself. Life. Right? Yeah. yeah. So you might think of it religious or mythologically as being opposed to God, but it's like being Mephistopheles and Faust and, and saying that everything deserves to be destroyed. Yeah. That's his argument. And so when we look at this um, groupings of many philosophies that, uh, you know, you might hear it called postmodernism. Uh, academically, it's uh, various forms of critical theory. Um, it, it's, it's born out of various forms of uh, Marxism and Hegelianism and all these other nonsense that no one's going to know what the hell I'm talking it's about. It's communist dog shit. That's what he meant to say. It It is, but you have to understand why that is uh, antithetical to being itself. Because I think this is what people don't, don't understand. What they're, You have this idea that, okay, the universe is ordered in a particular way. Yes. That order is There's essentially... There's a natural order. Yes. And that is God. And in order... Yeah to um let's say i shouldn't say in order there are people who wish that the order of the world was different than it is so they wish that the order of the world that is should not be so that their imagined ideal can ideal. be brought into being that was the word i was looking for in regards to what abel was to cain his ideal yeah there's something though i have this little turning point in my head 
where we can be a little bit sympathetic to Kane, and it relates to something that happened to me recently. Um, so I should explain that. So uh, a couple weeks ago, I got sick. Probably was COVID. Yeah. Uh, was nothing serious. I'm in pretty good shape. Took me about for like a day and a half. Sure. Uh, and afterwards, some chest congestion or whatever. But uh, I live a very regimented life, and during that day and a half, I just could not do the things I normally would do like the, yeah. the, the the day that i really had it i didn't do anything i was in bed all day because sure, i was just, yeah. just like destroyed i spoke to you that day yeah i was in pretty rough shape yeah um but it did something to me to be laid low by the universe like it yeah. was um and it 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 made me realize some things that we'll get into but with that context in mind I think when we look at the Cain and Abel story, there is some aspect of this that is sympathetic to Cain. Um, I actually don't know, because the story doesn't say, that the sacrifices that Cain and Abel gave weren't each of their best. So what I mean by that is, like, Abel was a shepherd, so the things that he had were just more valuable. He could. He had the capacity um, to give more to God, you know, Cain was a farmer. So if he's like, you know, maybe he can sacrifice wheat, but then wheat is of relatively low value. Yeah, yeah sure. it's not the same as sacrificing for a lamb. And it very well may be that in the context of the story, Cain was in a position in life in which he had no capacity not to falter. Not to saying that he didn't, let's say, make choices in life that led him to the position he was in. Yeah. Because the question is, why is Abel a shepherd and why is Cain the farmer in the context that that story was written? Like, if you have a family, like, there's something happened where you to put yourself in sure. that position. You're not just like... But that's not uncommon. I mean, yeah. yeah, we can see that. And I think, actually, there's something to be said for the fact that Abel dies and Cain goes on to produce the what you would think would be like the children of the world from which yeah, we are the children if we, of Cain. If, if we take it as a literal historical account, which I don't, but if we did yeah. for the sake of uh, argument, we would all be the descendants of Cain. Yes. And so we are all going to embody Cain at some time or another. Or maybe we could look at it from the perspective that we are, we, we each have both Cain and Abel. We both, and we, we have the ability to embody Cain and Abel. And we do embody both. Maybe, maybe I actually have a suspicion. This is from this is from Nietzsche that actually no, we we never embody Abel. I think we strive to. We strive to, but I don't think I think it's a mistake to think that we do. I think it if we believe that we do, we end up like Abel did, which is dead in a ditch at the hands of some of oh, someone resentful around us, or are the part of us that is resentful that we never quite make it. Very optimistic. <laughs> well, I want to relate this to me getting sick because okay. before I got sick, it's so funny that it was such a minor illness and I did this, but before I got sick, I really believed that I could essentially strive to be able, even though I, I've, I've kind of already articulated this before it, but I didn't really believe it in the same way. And after I got sick, the moment of, forced pause of the universe laying me low not a, this is like a, a virtue of mine i became much more receptive to the idea of accepting 
my limitations imposed on me that things are out that are outside my controls the classic stoic like yes you know you only are concerned with that which you can actually affect directly and yes. it's usually almost it's hardly anything but i couldn't accept that until happenstance circumstances until fate put that at my feet even though i've been reading this for like a couple of years now and really studying it and trying to put it into practice it was something outside of my control that opened me up emotionally to actually be able to accept and embrace the limitations of my own being, if that makes sense. Surrender or be forced to surrender. Yes. I had to be beaten <laughs> down by the universe. When we are when we are broken, we become willing. <laughs> yeah, literally, literally, that's in the Zhangzi. Like, you have to break in order to have the proper ridges to fit into the universe. It's, it's also you're, you, you've had an ego death of sorts, it sounds like, where, you know, you've been forced to, to accept your own mortality in reality, you know, and there's a, I think there's something beautiful and, and I think it's part of, of our, I don't think we can really grow until that happens. Um, it seems to me that when I think of all the, times where i've undergone some sort of ego death and these these are ego deaths all, all of all of the times where i've been sort of introduced to faith is when i had to undergo an ego death i had to to, to realize that the the world around me and the way i viewed it was wrong um and i had to in a sense move forward with well, this is confusing it kind of goes back to our last discussion but moving forward with less than i thought i had and relearning my way, like relearning how to walk, right? But, but in a sense, like it's like learning how to walk with just one leg, and then like <laughs> breaking that leg, and then having it to, to heal, and then learning how to walk with both legs. You know, it's um, I don't know. Like I, I like I said, there's a, there was a when I all the times where I've where I've gone through this like ego death situation where I've had to find where I've had to find comfort in, in faith. I felt an overwhelming sense of gratitude. Um, and I think it's because, and you probably relate to this, right? It's like, I am deeply uncomfortable with, I'm deeply uncomfortable with vulnerability. And as a strapping late, you know, 20s, 30-year-old man who's physically capable or financially capable or whatever. Um, I never really had to face that vulnerability. My, not just my own personal vulnerability, but my fear of the vulnerability. Um, and as I go, as I get older and as I experience more and I'm being forced to face it. I'm coming into contact with my limitations and it's like, uh, it breaks me. It chops, it chops up the, the pathological, like idea of who I, the idea of who I am. Um, I don't cry very often. I'm not a, I, I'm really bad at crying and I, and it's, it's, rooted in some deep you know uh coping mechanisms from like a, a traumatic childhood right i learned how to like be tough but when i get in these positions i i cry 
like not really like how I'd like to cry. Like I'd really like to unlike my girlfriend knows how to cry like really well. It's incredible. She is like the most uh, emotionally available person. There's a we joke that like maybe she's too emotionally available. And then there's me over here <laughs> who like can't just just can't do it right. But like I feel such gratitude in these times <clears throat> when I have such an overwhelming burden placed on me that I feel like I can't carry it alone. And then I let what we call God into my life. And then I feel like it's like I feel the love I didn't feel as a child. It's like I feel like this warm embrace. Um, it's the same feeling in a sense that drugs gave me. Right. It's like I feel um, I feel like I'm not alone. Yeah, it's well, uh, super interesting you say that. Um, so in his <clears throat> in his first book, Nietzsche and uh, Birth of Tragedy, it's it's a bizarre book. It's a it, ostensibly it's about um, what is it like drama and plays and like the psychological nature uh, of those. But there's a bunch of let's say psychological ideas that were way ahead of Nietzsche's time. He just didn't have words for them because no one had studied it. Yeah, sure. And one of them was the the idea of the Dionysian, so from the god of wine, Dionys Dionysus, and um, the Apolline from Apollo. And he describes this experience partway through the book in this mad rush of text, as Nietzsche does, about this moment where we are able to, let's say, step out of our persona, the idea of who we think we are. That's the Apolline, Apollo. It's the light. Mm -hmm. that's actually an illusion it's a lie that we use to survive the, the giant sea of blackness that is the yeah. dark reality that's our ego yes and we step aside from our ego we go into a it's like a, a reverie despite the suffering like this feeling of intoxication and then he has this experience describes the experience of the two kind of merging together coming crashing like you you separate them and it, but that's still you so they have to come s smashing back together mm -hmm. and you get this glimpse of the profundity of reality because you get because when the dine you're in the dinesian right you're in the total madness like you're intoxicated so you're not yeah you're not really you're possessed yes it's not you it's yeah. like the you can think of it in union terms. It's like the Dionysian is like the whole animal that is you. Yeah. And then the Apolline is like the conscious you who thinks you're in control all the time. Yeah. Like looking around thinking, how oh, I'm the boss. Superior, yes. You separate them so one can see the other and they recognize that each other, they really both recognize that each other exist. Because we can talk about it abstractly, but it's how often do you actually experience yourself as two different animals? Yeah. Almost never, right? Except in these moments where all of a sudden this numinous or emotionally filled experience hits you and you and you you not at the same time yeah it's experiencing I, i'm sorry you're moving very fast oh, sorry, sorry. This, but like experiencing yourself as two different animals like not at the same time no but i mean that's what's happening and you get moment. that overwhelming that yeah that the ego death and then reconstitution of self yeah is you being torn apart from each other and then reconstituted reordered you found a new relationship with yourself. Um, we've, we've called it God. Uh, you might call it the God image. Yeah. So the God image is this like, um, it's sort of like this greater sense of self. It's, it's you've, cause you, he's weird. He's got two different ideas of the self. Okay. You've got like your potential that resides within the animal within you. That's not manifested mm -hmm. yet. That's a self archetype. But then, 
you have the whole of you that is both your consciousness and your unconscious together. And that's also like this greater self that forms the God image. Mm-hmm. My understanding of Yun is, co- is correct. Um, and it's only when you, you are able to bring that self up out of the, uh, the depths of the unconscious into the light of consciousness to bring who you could be together with who you are. So you can actually see who you are to become, if that makes yeah. sense. Uh, and there's a tremendous amount of pain. The alchemists, um, they had a name for this is that the first step in, um, uh, transmuting the philosopher's stone, they called it the negrito, which yeah. means the blackness, which is that sudden sense of pain, the weeping, the sorrow, the yeah. melancholy, um, that is then followed by this reconstitution of your very soul. And that's how they believed you could do the magic. Um, Cause they thought, well, if you think about it, it's that way. When you reconstitute yourself, you become capable now of overcoming the thing that you were priorly not capable of bearing. Sure. Yeah. Through the self transformation. Um, I get too crazy with that one. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. So, uh, I don't know if anybody else understood that, but I, I I'm, I'm trying to te- keep along with it. I mean, my interpretation of what you just said uh, was something along the lines of, as people, it's in our interest and the world's best interest if we try to become the greatest version of ourselves. And in doing this, we eventually encounter the world, which is vastly superior and and incapable of overcoming and through that process of encountering that uh that which is greater than us we 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 go through this sort of roller coaster process of like because if i'm drunk with my own superiority i miss so much i don't see the world like i hear and and I guess this is, I mean, I guess all I can do is try to offer my interpretation and how it applies in my life and my experience. But it's like, in my life, when I have been drunk and possessed with my own superiority, I don't, I didn't treat others very well. I didn't see a need to. It wasn't until I had to face my own, like, mortal problems where I started to to, to treat the world better to treat others better and to incorporate like myself to, to view myself as a part of the world, as opposed to this individual entity sort of floating through the world. Um, is that sort of what you were saying or am I completely off the mark? No, that that's correct. Uh, what's interesting occurred to me is that, so you described it like kind of being in a state of like individualistic chaos and that blinding you to the fact that you are part of a whole and not part just, of like a, a not bad. just chaos but like i i see it as it's chaotic but it's 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 partially chaotic it's like it's like a soldier who's really good at killing but not really good at like socializing and so you take him out of the war zone and put him back in society he's going to cause a fuck i mean we see it actually we actually have examples of this right like it's it's it can be very dark um dangerous Right. So it's like, that's kind of the way I see it. And until we like, until we find a way to like break our perception or until the world breaks our perception, uh, it's like we have holes all through us. There's, we're just, we're not, 
we're developed for one task. We're not developed in the sense that we're not homogenous with the world around us. And that's like, uh, that, like we are incomplete. Yes. Um, it, I mean, I experienced something similar, um, except with, with me, it looks like on the outset that everything should have worked out just fine. So I had um, what really was like an excess of order, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And when you have that excess of order, you start to treat people badly. And the reason why is because judgmentalism comes naturally and in yeah. a sense inevitably. If I believe a thing is good, then the opposite of that is evil. So yeah. if I think discipline is good. All those who are undisciplined are uh, less than weak and pathetic. Yeah, cut right? off their heads. <laughs> you well, you get you get this impulse. And um, what's interesting, and I'm sure you experience, you know, the same thing when you go through this process of ego death and rebirth, is that you become a little bit more benevolent. Sure, um, yeah, you have to because you start to see yourself in everyone and in yes. everything. Yes, you and I've experienced that recently, where even uh, I catch myself thinking my old judgmental thoughts and i have now a desire just to let those go and how many do you have a day because i have a lot <laughs> like um, all yeah. day long i i don't i i i you know i know that we are we are more than our thoughts and i know that we are as peterson would put it a collection of spirits right so it's very difficult to say what I am or what you are. Um, but I know, like, for me, like, I have a lot of really judgmental thoughts. Like, um, not just judgmental, but like, uh, angry. And I, I don't know if angry is the term. Maybe it's something like, um, I don't know. Neg let's just say negative, right? Like, I have these negative thoughts towards others. Um, and I see it. A lot. I see what I'm driving a lot. If you pay attention for the listeners out there, if you're not sure if you have these thoughts, just pay attention, pay close attention to your thoughts when you're driving. What I notice is that like, I am constantly judging people and negatively, you know, I see people on the road and they do something I don't like. And I, I immediately feel this rage become like come over me. And then I shut it down because I'm like, well, that's, you know, that's like the animal inside wanting to come out and we need to, you know, keep that together or keep it focused on, you know, defensive driving. Right. Or I see somebody, I saw somebody post a selfie on Facebook and I thought, kind of fucking loser posting selfie on Facebook. Um and I and I and I and I mean obviously I posted a selfie on Facebook, so that's a ridiculous thought to have. But I do, you know, in today's day and age, I thought we were all for the record, everybody, I think we should all be over selfies. Unless there's something cool behind you or you got like a cool tattoo on your face or something like that. If you're taking a picture of yourself in 2022, um you should stop. But <laughs> back to my point. I don't want to take a hard stance on selfies. Sorry guys. But like back to my point, like, so now this is what I experience, right? Since I, since see, I just had a judgmental thought right there, right? See, it's, ev it's everywhere, right? So now I notice like when I want to be harsh with people, I have to stop myself. Um, and I have to, it's almost like I've, I've made this, like, maybe it's pathological. I don't know, but it's almost like I've made this agreement with God or with the universe or with whatever the collective unconscious, whatever you want to call it. Where it's like, 
I'm going to try to be the best version of Josh. Um, and I'm going to try to see the best version of other people. And so when people do things to me that seem inappropriate or rude, I'm going to try, instead of being like, what a fucking asshole. You know, Marquise looks like judges me for my eating sugar. And I'm like, fucking asshole. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say to myself, hey, you know, Marquise is just another person just like me, just trying to like get through the day. And I don't know if Marquise has judged me for eating sugar. He probably has, actually. That's that's probably true. But I've never gotten upset with him for it um, until now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, I really, I, this is like actively happening in my life, right? Like, I'm actively like stopping myself um, from like, from having these negative thoughts towards others by judging that they're, you know, like, like they say, like, we're all God's children. And like, now I'm starting to see myself as, as, one of God's children and not just as the fucking Uber, you know, Uber minch or whatever, you know? Yeah. That <clears throat> not becoming possessed by that particular spirit. Cause I'm also extremely vulnerable to that. Yeah. yeah um, and it is, difficult. yeah, it's the kind of will to it really, I think what that is, is, is probably the fundamental will to power because it's always this violent imposition onto the universe like that's or others people in the universe yeah. usually no it's present it's there yeah so i feel it um i i have to do the same thing you know uh it's it's perhaps uh not a good idea to throw this out on the internet where all no, the people, throw it out this all, is what all, the people all, want all the people who uh come in but yeah i have a, a terrible habit of judging incredibly harshly yeah um nobody wants and, to hear our tailored edited versions of it. it's so boring who gives a shit let them judge us. They they will learn one day. They'll go, damn! I should have listened to them when they said when I heard it on the podcast <laughs> instead of having to get my leg chopped off or something. Yeah, but you know, part of me too, because you said children of God. I I really like thinking of that. We're all the children of Cain. We're all, uh, let's say, heritors. Yeah, heritors of his yeah. fallibility. We're all going to make that same fucking stupid yeah. mistake and we're all going to shake our fist at God and we're all going to, to suffer for it and require that in order for us to be let's say made anew because really I think what we we we're all let's say going to be branded by the universe branded yeah. by God yeah. and that's how we're going to be able to get through um and it's not purely through the raw will to power only. I do think uh, that it has its place. Like I, I've noticed, sure, yeah. you know, if I decide, okay, well, I want to actually engage with someone in some type of philosophical argument, I just turn it on and tear them into pieces with yes. no remorse. You can pull out my sword and chop you up. Yes. And there's there's an importance for that Um you know, for the for the listeners who've stuck around from episode one, I, I have an aphorism called "Invitation to Violence," and it's really about how we, if we don't acknowledge the fact that violence um, underpins civility, that uh, liars, snakes, and manipulators are the ones yeah. who take full advantage of all the situations. And like we very, you know, the very started out talking about it, you know, in modern society where we are civil where oftentimes we don't actually recognize that underpinning threat of violence that really is there and we should be aware of it. When does it happen is you just have to be avoidant and walk away I because, mean, you know, I don't know. I think, I think men understand that. I understand that. Like 
Amongst other men, yeah, but yeah, like amongst other men, like it's real clear that like if the wrong thing is said, like it can get violent. Like that, that doesn't seem far. Perhaps but maybe it... some men don't know, but every, most of the men I know know very well that like you say the wrong thing, like it might come to that, and it can come fast. Yes, but we're not really in a society. Not, and I'm not making our we should go back to a society where out in the world you're confronted just with a bunch of men. It's like, you know, probably more than half of the workforce at this point um, are women because, like, young men especially are dropping out like flies. That's possible, yeah. And so you end up with these, you know, really bureaucratic structures where that implicit threat kind of can't be, you can't, I'm not saying you you don't act out on it, but it's there still. But the problem becomes when people stop they start ignoring it. I don't know. Maybe they're taking too much Lexapro and they don't like notice it anymore. Cause it's like, I have met some, you know, they say like, you've met some people in the world too. I'm sure you're like, has no one ever punched you in your face? Maybe they should. Yeah. Well, I have another aphorism. It's called the snake's advantage. And it goes something like it is to the snake's advantage that the strong, or yeah, or not the snake, the weak man, it's the weak man's advantage that the strong man enforces decorum. Sure. Yeah, because then the world turns on the strong man. Yeah. Uh, well, it turns on the the honest strong man, and the foothill of the stupid tyranny that is preventing honest. Let's say the honest truth is that, like, if you say, like, you need to be polite and recognize that I'm another human being, or I'll punch you in the mouth. Yes. Right. So if that is being curbed by the foothill, let's say. Uh, in the modern day, it would be the state doing that, right? Because yeah. the state's the police force. That's what's that's what that's the guy behind the asshole, yeah. who knows that the police officer is behind him to protect him, where he can uh, he can poke and prod you, he can manipulate sure, yeah. you, he can lie. He and can... you see this all the time. I've seen it with plenty of people, and it's obnoxious, at least we could say. Yeah, and I don't have a solution to this problem, but I, it's to identify that that will to power, that aggression, that a willingness and desire even to use violence is really important to protect society and us each as individuals in that society from the, uh, how would I describe it? The degeneration into Machiavellian uh, manipulation, lying, deception, sneaky maneuvers, all of these Howard, like here it comes, right? (laughs) The things that people do, uh, taking advantage of a society built by men stronger than they are. Sure. Like, yeah, you can hear the... So, the, so, so I can hear every bit of it. <laughs> I can see, hey, for the listeners out there, uh, Marquise is snarling right now. <laughs> anyway, so, I mean, there. I think there actually is somewhat of a solution. We can explore it. And, and I don't know, maybe it's not, but we'll we'll look into it, right? So, kind of going back to what I said about, like, my agreement with God. Right, my agreement with the with the world around me, right, which is to try to be a member of it and to try to try to be a force for good, a force that affirms life in the world, right? Which means that like I don't lie knowingly. I mean, I think we all lie, but I try really hard not to knowingly lie to people. If I need to say a hard truth, I try to say it with compassion. I try to not create situations that are gonna hurt others. I, I, I try to stick to my word. I mean, we we all kind of know what like being a, a like a decent human being is, if not a good human being. Peterson said once that you know we cannot, if you try to manipulate the world, it will snap back and crack you in your face. 
Um, he also said something along the lines of no one gets away with anything. And the entire like 30 years of his like career as a psychologist, he's never seen anyone get away with anything. And that terrified me to hear that, right? Because I, I got some, I have things I've done in my past. I don't think any of them that serious, but I don't know if I paid for them, but maybe I have. Because the, the thing I realized, and I talked to sponsees about this, because sometimes they don't seem to get it. They think like, well, I'll quit drugs, but I want to start selling drugs. And I go like, okay, so we're going to have to have a talk about this, right? So the idea is this, you know, like, okay, let's say I do something unethical. Let's say I uh, steal from somebody um, and I get away with it, right? And then I think that stealing is not only okay, but maybe I think I'm kind of good at it. So maybe not only do I steal again, but maybe I steal something, steal something greater of greater value, right? Um, don't get a, I don't get caught the next time I do it. And maybe I don't get caught the next time. Maybe I don't get caught for hundreds of times, but eventually I do. And one might suggest that the one time I got caught is actually the debt for all the times I didn't get caught, right? The one lie I tell, you know, I tell a lie and I don't get caught in it. Or maybe I need, but I still will probably need to tell more lies in order to cover up the initial lie. I also tell myself psychologically that it's okay to lie and that I'm good at it, right? So I'm not sure you can just go through the world just just doing the worst things possible. I don't think, I don't know if the weak man really has, he might have some sort of an initial advantage, but I think over a long enough timeline, the strong man always wins. Yes, because it's it, the weak man doesn't realize the he, world it's not going to turn be- on you. Yeah, and it's not going to be the same weak man. You get turned over. Yeah, as you, you yeah, know, it, it's you know like and a, a strong man stays resolved. Yes, if he is uh, of good, of good moral, moral character. character yes. So you know, it's like I always think like, and this is tough because there's a a desire for vengeance within us, right? It's like when somebody does me wrong, I really want to smash their fucking face in. And I can for like 99% of people, I, I can't, but what is that? What does that do to what, how, how am I corrupting my soul? Talk one thinks so in the, he has commentaries on uh, Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching. So it's an old Taoist book basically, but there's a, uh, it's interesting because you would think like, oh, Taoism, yin yang, peace and balance. You yes. think all the new age interpretation. It's like, fuck, this is written like a thousand years ago by hyper fucking conservative Chinese people. <laughs> yeah. Like, fuckers haven't read this shit. And they say, well, look, man, there's a time where you got to fucking pull your sword out. Yeah. And you got to fucking cut someone down. But when you do that, yeah, it actually does fuck you up. And you need to remember that every time you do that, it's you need to treat it as a grief and a tragedy. Yeah. Not They don't tell you don't cut the guy down with the sword. They say keep a really fucking nice sword. Yeah. But only use it as like, the last resort, and then when you do grieve for the tragedy that you have had to impart on existence, like recognize that this was out of your hands, but your duty as a being in the universe came to came to this. And and we can also look at it from like we what we're talking about is spiritual death. Like, make no mistake about it. You know, there are plenty. There are a lot of examples in this world of people who have died spiritual deaths. Go go pull up at the Perkins exit in Wheeling, West Virginia, and you will see spiritual death in front of you. It's all over, though. It's not just there, right? So it's like every time, every time you do something wrong, some part of your mind just declares you a piece of shit for that. 
And you might ignore that part of your mind. Maybe you'll rationalize it. Oh, it's okay to steal from him. He's got plenty of money. Or okay, it's okay to hit him or her or whatever. She deserved it. Whatever it is, right? But there's a part of you that's that dies a little bit, right? And it and if if this happens enough, eventually you destroy yourself, right? So it's like if we can if we can agree that we are animals existing in the world and that we developed through evolutionary means as social creatures, right? And the concept of the conscience, that thing that exists within us, which as a mechanism, I believe serves us to make sure that that we coexist together well, right? It's a, it's it's for our own good and survival, right? You betray that mechanism and you will destroy yourself eventually. And you might destroy the whole world with it. Yeah, so this there's a... Um... I don't know the names. There's a set of Catholic ideas that are embodied in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. That's basically this. Now, I'm, funnily enough, not actually a Lord of the Rings fan. I've never read through the books, uh, and I've never even seen through the movies. Um, <laughs> Josh is looking up on my shelf where I have Nerd. a bunch of George R. R. Martin books and like some D&D books and such. I do have those, but no. Um, the idea in Lord of the Rings is that evil ultimately comes to destroy itself through a slow corruption. Yeah. And so, you know, you mentioned before lying is a really good example because I could just steal it from Peterson. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when you lie, you actually become less able to tell the truth. Yeah. Um, it's this weird – part of it is because as you become reliant on lying, you use it more and then you tell the truth less. And it's actually like hard to tell the truth when you don't want to. Yeah. And uh, like a muscle that atrophies, your truth telling ability decreases, your lying ability increases. It becomes harder and harder to choose the, the higher road to the lower road until eventually, I won't name names, but there's a particular, um, let's say, person who uh, frequents uh, where I work and just tells chronic and impulsive lies every single day all the time fascinating if you, if you if you start talking about something you did this person will have done it uh except like it's like sort of like one-upping you yeah but to an extreme and then ranting on as if he has expertise that he doesn't have mm -hmm. to the point where I, one time i let him talk about swords for like possibly <laughs> 10 minutes and like i know a lot about swords you seem like the kind of guy and he didn't know anything <laughs> and so after the 10 minutes um i just told him how everything he said was wrong like, we, i went funny. through it and broke you, it down you crashed you crashed you destroyed his like foundations of reality then. but no i couldn't because his foundation was his, too strong yeah there is no yeah. there's no reality that's the thing is that the next like minute was as if nothing happened and the next day as if nothing happened and um to, well it can't because if he was to acknowledge it it would be to acknowledge his own insufficiencies yes um which is impossible for this individual. Because, uh, uh, again, because it's crazy. It, it sounds like this wouldn't be true. But, it's. I mean, I've seen it embodied in a person. You lie enough times mm -hmm. about small, stupid things that don't even matter. Yeah. You corrupt your fundamental ability to know the reality of yourself. Oh, yeah. And then if you can't accept yourself, you know, we talked about uh, at the beginning of this, having faith to bear up against existence or, uh, the you know, to bear the suffering of life. You're not going to be able to develop that at that point because you're not going to be able to even do that first part where you, uh, you know, build yourself up. You're not even going to be able to get that far. The, the crushing weight of life is looming and you don't know when it's coming. It might come when you get a disease at the age of five. It might not show up until you're 75. 
or it might show up somewhere along the way. If you want to have a chance of being able to bear that burden, you better make sure you're something that can carry a heavy load. And I believe, as Peterson said, in his interpretation of the Bible, right, it's like, bear your cross, right? So Yeah, and that that's really, um, it's funny, because I, 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 it's funny to be looking at my history, and, you know, I was, we mentioned earlier on, the, the edgy teenage atheist. Sure. Um, so a lot, of people, <laughs> a lot of people know me still in that way, if, like, you knew me from, like, growing up then around sure, this area yeah. i grew up here and everything so a lot of people uh probably do still think that about me i know my uh we were talking about my disconnection from my family members mm-hmm. i'm pretty certain that my family all still think i'm very much that like anti-religious teenager okay. like in my in my disposition but um you know we're really not i'm, I'm not that way anymore you're certainly not that way and I was thinking, for the people who are religious out there, what I actually hope for them is that they can come to see their religion in a way that is more useful to them, to to, to actually develop faith as a disposition toward the universe, toward the world, toward God, if you will, and not merely, um, let's say, what we described it as not being right. Cause we described it as not being just this blind, like let me include my ears and my eyes with wax and just shout and yes. scream as, and, and, and block out the universe because um, I, I do see that more often than I don't see that. It's very rare that I see someone who has, even if they don't understand it consciously and they can't articulate it, that has a, it's a sophisticated development of the of concept of faith. And I guess uh, we can try, I kind of want to try to define it at this point because we've talked about it sure. and its consequences. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, first of all, go just to, to kind of cap off what you said there. I mean, in the religious communities, um, I think religion's a drug in and of itself. For some people, it can be used as a drug, you know, just like somebody can go out and have a beer and then go home and take care of their family and other people can't stop for three days. You know, it's like uh, I've met we've all met plenty of religious people who do atrocious things, um, but yet go to church on Sunday. Um, So I don't I don't I don't like to think of it in any religious context. I I don't claim any religion. Um, I, I, I take from all of them. I like to I think all of them. They've been around a long time. They're they're bigger and they're they're wiser than me, right? So like there must be something to them. They resonate with people for longer than writing has existed, right? Because the stories of the Bible, uh, the Old Testament, they're all they're all older than writing. They were they're just what we they were around, and then we figured out how to write. Um, so I think you know, faith is faith is a Maybe it's our, uh, our, the, it is the, the mechanism that has developed within us to allow us to face the terribly crushing weight of reality. I want to go one step further and go like full Nietzschean and say to, to love <laughs> the overwhelming, crushing yes. reality. Yes. Because I think when you, because you talked about it as being gracious and loving, like something is loving yes. you. And it's like when you're able to love the terror of the universe, then only, and then and only then 
can you realize that it actually kind of loves you? You exist in it. Like you don't have to be. You it. are the universe. Yeah, that would be the idea of the oneness. You you become our atonement and accepting your own part. Like you are a part of this, and like, and like you're not alone. Yes. Um, yeah, it's a hell of a place to get to. Hell yeah. I think this was great, dude. We we got to do this like regularly. I feel like we we uh we we bring a unique like one two punch to things, and every time we talk, whether it's on here or just at the coffee shop or wherever, I feel like we we unravel the the complexities of the world, and I always walk away feeling like a little bit like a little bit safer. Saver? <laughs> I don't know. Well, like we said, you know, it's like you got to come to accept your own vulnerability. Mm, so, so you have more. Yeah, uh, keep coming back to the Zen Buddhists. You have faith in the way. The way being the co- the the great course of your life in the universe. There's only one path, and I'm walking it, brother. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. That was pretty good. So, for those of you listening, thank you for staying with us. Um, Again, if you want more of this, check out my website, wildislelit.com, uh, where I've got podcasts, got my blog, check out my editing services and my published fiction and whatever the hell else I put out there. All right, friends. See you next time. Later, guys.